Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Wednesday, October 20th, 2010, and our guest tonight is Jennifer Fox, the author of Your Child Strengths. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Great to be here. Really glad that you are here. You can go ahead and turn your mic off for the next couple of minutes, then we'll bring you back on. The Future okay. of Education is sponsored by Illuminate, my employer, now part of Blackboard the Blackboard Collaborate Group. The project I work on is Learn Central, the social, the free social network for educators with Illuminate Baked In. We hope you'll come and take advantage of that. We're also sponsored this month, hooray, by Microsoft Bang and their Redo Project. I'm cheering because it helps that never-ending book budget. Anyway, thanks to Microsoft and Bang for this month. Coming up in November, our Global Education Conference. This has really been fun. Of the 200 and some odd, actually I think it's closer to 250 proposals that we've received so far, 170 have been vetted and are up on the website. The vetting process is taking place through the regional chair people around the world. Feel free to go to globaleducation.com and see what globaleducationconference.com and see what sessions we've got up already. We, it looks like we'll have over 300 ultimately. That's five days in November, all for free, worldwide. It should just be a complete blast. Coming up on the Future of Education tomorrow night, uh, folks from the Museum of Modern Art are going to talk about the use of their online tools for education. Jim Burke joins us next week to talk about his English companion name, one of the great success stories. Diane Ravitch next week and Clarence Fisher. Lots of fun coming up. You can see the list there. Uh, I did put the Global Education Conference in there because it is five days and you'll notice that the interview schedule is a little light around that time for that very reason. If you've missed the session, they are all recorded. Yesterday was Nancy White on Communities and Networks. That was just delightful. Her book, Digital Habitats, well worth looking at. Kathleen Cushman before that on uh, a student panel on homework. Roger Shank, who's not mentioned in um, Jennifer's book, but I'm going to ask her about him, uh, spoke to us last week and that recording is up, plus lots, lots more that you will see up there. So I hope there's something at futureofeducation.com that you find worth listening to. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment. The first thing I want to encourage you to do is to go up and go to View Layouts and switch your screen to the wide layout. It just makes the chat a little bit easier to follow. And at the bottom of your participant window, you can see there are ways to interact, the smiley face, the clapping hand. The larger hand with the green up arrow is how you would raise your hand to ask a question. If you think you'd like to ask a question using the microphone later in the show, you can do so. But be sure to go up to Tools Audio, run, your, run the Audio Setup Wizard, and make sure that your uh, microphone is working. Um, you can also leave uh, questions in the chat, of course. So you're welcome to do so in either way. You can leave messages in the chat area for each other. There's a drop-down box if you need to send a private message, but do know that both Jennifer and I see those private messages. So oftentimes, you'll just leave it on public and uh, leave those messages there. All that whole chat is recorded, and so it is available later. If you see something in there, a, a URL or a link or reference, you can look it up later. Now I'm going to give you a chance to let us know where you're participating from. To the left of the map, you'll see a wand with a red star at the end. Go ahead and click on that, then click on the map. I know we have Peru. Feel free to shout out in the chat as well. New Zealand, 
Mexico. Wow. In the British Isles, tell us where you are. You know, is this Ireland? Could that be? That's always fun for me since Hargadon is an Irish name, the little known Irish name of Hargadon. I haven't told that story here, I don't think, but I did find the Hargadon family farm in June on a trip to Ireland. It was just a marvelous experience. Really, really fun. Well, wherever you're listening from, we are sure delighted to have you participating. And if you're listening to the recording, thanks so much. Hi, Jim. Yes, right outside of Sligo, there is a beautiful farm that uh, my great-great-grandfather and his wife raised nine children in. Tiny little building. So Jennifer, I'm really glad to have you here. Go ahead and turn your mic back on. So I want to tell you that I owe you an apology, and I will tell you why. Um, I, I really wasn't fair to you prior to reading the book. You had a publicity agent, or a publicity agent contacted me. Uh, I got a little package, a PR package. Uh, there's just no question that that photo of you is kind of a glamour shot. And it was very glossy material, and I really didn't expect much in the book. So that's why I'm apologizing, because it was uh, a book of great depth and substance for me. And it's one that I'm hoping I can convince my family to read along with me. I'm wondering if anybody else has had that reaction, and, and you're finding that people are telling you just how much they appreciate the book. Um, I don't, um, yeah, uh, I don't know if you're asking me that or the audience that, but um, I do have people call me all the time and say to me that they were surprised about the book, and um, I, I always take that as a great compliment. So I put it I don't both, think, go ahead. I don't think that the title of the book um, actually lets people into the whole first part of the book, which is really a critique of the educational system that we're in. And um, so I think people see it as a, um, you know, just sort of a light bullet, bulleted parenting book, which it's, it actually has a lot more than that in it. It really does. And I think, I'm wondering, I put both copies of the book up on the screen because the one to the left, which is the hardcover, which by the way on Amazon is discounted right now if you're interested in buying it, um, it reminded me of the Strengths Finders book and I wondered if that was a little bit of a red herring for me. Um, I don't know because you thought maybe there would be that test in it. We, we, because Marcus Buckingham is so widely published and um, people like his book so much and he wrote the foreword, the publisher decided that we would try to try to emulate that and get people who had already bought his other book to look into a book for their children now. Um, and then we did a big change up in the second version, in the paperback version, um, just to try to appeal to a different audience. Well, I have to say, I really did love the book, and um, uh, and I appreciate that. I'm actually getting ready to order when I get my next Audible credit. I'm going to order the Audible ver the audio version, because I'd like to actually listen the whole thing through again. Uh, I'm going to name some of the stories. I wanted to actually let you tell the story of the book, but before we do so, I, I wanted to name a couple of the, the most moving parts of the book for me and see if you could kind of give us a little bit of a brief overview through those stories of, of what you're talking about. 
So the first one was Sister Jonah, Professor Henning, and their authentic compliments. Yes, um, thank you. Um, my, I started out in school, loving school, and had a, um, a great Catholic school experience, which many people didn't, but I loved the nuns, the Dominican nuns who taught me. And my first teacher was somebody who noticed that I loved to write. And what she did was took a story that I had written and had me go up to an eighth grade class and read the story aloud. And I, I really hadn't anticipated that experience and how I would feel when I did that, but I was, you know, terrified to go and talk to eighth graders when you're a first grader. They seem very big and um, quite scary. And so I went and read the book in front of, the, or my story in front of them, and they were extremely reception, or they had a great reception for me, and I was just full of all kinds of energized, excited feelings that made me feel like, wow, I really, I really love this. I love to write. I love to read my writing. And um, that really stuck with me for a, a long time until I got to high school. And in high school, I was terrible at uh, math. And um, because I was bad at math, I started to be poor in everything. Um, weaknesses are like that. You you start to feel bad in one thing and then you start to feel bad in, in everything when you don't find success somewhere. So um, I did poorly in high school. I practically flunked out of high school. I tell a little story about I think my dad paid the math professor $50 to get me to graduate. And at the time, I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison and as a resident of the state, I could get in there. Almost anyone could even if I had really bad grades. And so I, I took a, um, I, I went along and took English classes and um, the first class I could get into was a graduate class in 19th century British literature and I, I hated it. I, I thought I was stupid, all the people were older than me and I was going to drop out of the class when one of the teachers, um, what did I call him? <laughs> it wasn't oh, his name. Dr. Henning. His name was yeah, well, his name is Standish Henning, and actually he's passed away. And he was a wonderful, wonderful professor who um, pulled me aside and said, you can't drop the class, you're one of the smartest people in the class. And I, I had no concept of that. And yet he re-encouraged me that I had something to offer. And I tell that story at the beginning of the book because I, I really think of all of the people out there who don't think they have something to offer who, um, who miss their calling in life because they just don't have any confidence and they, don't, they haven't had that experience of, um, of a real rush of excitement about something. So I was reminded of, uh, I interviewed Paul Peterson a few weeks back and he's written a book called Saving Schools and he goes through the different educational reformers and he actually looks at their personal background to give you an understanding of sort of why they pushed for certain kinds of reform. And I felt that in your book, which is I felt that you'd had these personal experiences that had really informed your sense of uh, what was wrong and what was possible. And it also reminded me of Carol Dweck. Uh, are you familiar with Carol's work? Yes, I am. So again, same, same um, sort of a thing, telling her story as sort of an entree into this larger discussion. So yeah, my story was, was what motivated me to want to become a teacher. and. Um, because of the experience I had, and I really felt like, wow, if I miss 
I kind of missed the fact that I am interested in education and writing and and I, and all of that. Um, had I not bumped into some people who really supported me, and then what happened was I did become a teacher, and the next 18 years of being in the classroom and being an administrator really showed me that. Um, what was going on in schools, it just didn't make sense to me. And I, a lot of things that happened were really destructive to kids that I worked with. One of the stories I tell is that I had a, um, I was always somebody who taught kids who weren't doing well in other classes. I started out as a drama teacher and everyone wanted to take my classes and the teachers would always say, well, they want to take your classes because you're easy. And I always thought that that was such a way that they would have to not, um, not you know compete with me or something that you know not have to prove the kids why they would want to take their classes. It wasn't easy at all. I, um, I I I challenged kids, but I think the thing that I did was I would look for that piece of um, that piece that that every child could bring to the classroom situation, and I would build on that so everyone could be successful in my class. Not everyone could get an A in my class, but everybody could feel like they had something to contribute in the class. So they liked it. They felt empowered. So we've had a couple of guests on who have um, drama backgrounds. Sir Ken Robinson um, and Tony Wagner from Harvard. And you just reminded me of, of sort of the yes and philosophy that comes through in so much of improv and drama. Well, uh, the interesting thing about that is that Drama is an authentic performance class. You have a real audience, you have a real purpose, and you're not going to get away with shoddy work because you're in front of everyone. And um, for me, it was a great place because it was I was able to, as a teacher, do all of the things I liked to do. Um, I was able to direct, I was able to work with you know design, I was able to teach kids scripts. And from that, what's, what's kind of interesting is I took the leap then into administration because it's kind of, running a school is much like running a play. There are all kinds of different departments. You have to be able to see all the different um, aspects at once and manage them all at once and you know, push, push the thing to performance. And so it was a natural fit for my strengths to, to move from one area of teaching drama and directing plays into running a school. And you know, I love that you asked me about that because I think that um, the thing about strengths that is important is, you know, let me just define strength for you. A strength is something that energizes you. Uh, it's not necessarily something you're talented in. Um, you could be talented in it, but it, but, and you might not be. You might be energized by something you don't have any talent for. However, when, when you feel energized by something, you really want to do it. Now, because you don't have talent in everything, um, identifying your strengths is really important because if you're energized by, by acting, for instance, you might not have the talent to become a stage actor, but that, that piece that energizes you, being up in front of an audience perhaps it is, that can be transferred to somewhere else. And for me, it was able to transfer all the strengths that, it, that go into being in the theater transferred into running a school. And I was able to um, be successful in that arena. There's so much to talk about, and I and I know that we could go in any of a number of directions, um, and, and I'm tempted to, to go off in a different one, but uh, I think it might be helpful to have you kind of describe your current role, 
and uh, what you're doing, and, and specifically uh, maybe use that as a platform for talking about uh, the ways in which you're, in a very detailed way, you say that education isn't working. Um, okay, I, I was a teacher for many years and then I became a school administrator, um, high schools mostly. I was a school principal for, for many years and then I ran as a, a girls boarding school. And um, I was always interested in school reform and what they called progressive education, starting back with John Dewey and you know, working through all the, all the people who um, contributed to ex the idea of experiential learning. And I was always very interested in progressive education, but I found that it wasn't very progressive. So we were still talking about concepts as if they were new that had been introduced to the education world in the you know, 1930s. And so I got really dismayed and I got really tired of trying to talk to people about uh, progressive education. So I just sort of put my head down and ran this school. And then um, the girls at the school that I ran had learning disabilities. And they weren't really proud of what they could do. People often spoke about them as being um, unable to learn. Yet I saw in many different places where they were able to learn. Um, quite one little story is that there was a girl at the school who the teachers would always say, she can't follow directions at all. Um, and I took her on this trip to this mall, and to the Mall of America, if anyone knows that it's a gigantic mall in Minneapolis. And she said, let's go to Stone Cold Creamery. And I said, well, where is it? She said, well, follow me. She walked us through stores, up escalators, you know, over um, down hallways, and we finally ended up at this place and I said, have you been here before? And she responded, no, she'd never been here before. She just had this, um, this sense of direction and, and could, could follow people there uh, or, and people could follow her there. So she did, was able to uh, follow directions. She just wasn't able to follow them in class um, with, uh, hang on one second. Um, hi, I'm back, sorry. <laughs> My dog is. We're wondering what breed of dog. It's a border collie. Um, Nick gets bonus points. Yeah. So it's not for the barking, though. Um, so I was able to see how people could do things and have strengths that they couldn't transfer into a regular school environment. So I decided I would give one more stab at this. Uh, school reform business and I, I, I developed a program first on how to build kids' strengths and, um, and started to implement it at the school. And after that, the, the, then the book became published and the curriculum got attention and um, I then took a step out of schools and into the world of um, trying to make this idea that we should focus on what kids can do rather than what they can't do and not just kids with learning disabilities, but everyone, because our schools don't actually teach kids to find what they're passionate about and build a life out of that. What, what we do is we teach kids to get to the next level. The next level being, you know, for high school it's mostly get into college, but we don't help them figure out why they should get into college. We just decide that they should go there. And um, I think that uh, kids get into college and then they don't know what to do. They, a lot of them start to burn out. And in fact, the department that's gaining the most um, 
that they're hiring the most people in an Ivy League college is there, the mental health department. Because kids get there and they have so much anxiety and they don't really know where they're going or what to do. So I think in that sense, we as high school educators and um, pre-college pre, um, educators are not preparing kids for college, even if we're getting them into college, even if their test scores are high, because when they get there, they don't know what to do. Um, so I think that the, a lot of the concepts in my book speak to, and a lot of the concepts that I speak about have to do with really helping people figure out what it is that they have to contribute to this world. And our schools don't necessarily do that. We, we drop them off in, um, at the next level all the time rather than coaching them through to find out what, what, what they're going to do with their lives. So there was one point in the book where I literally sort of stood up angrily, and it was the admissions office call that you had made. Now, I, I, have, to, I have to make a disclaimer here. My father was dean of admissions at Stanford and Princeton for many years, and I don't think he would ever have done what was uh, given in the book. But are you willing to tell that short story? Yeah, you know, that's very interesting because th this woman actually con confessed this to me was mind-boggling. The U.S. World um, News and World Reports annually puts out a list, and you've probably all seen this, of rated colleges, top, top colleges. And um, how they rate colleges is based on the SAT scores of the admissions, uh, the freshman class. So we had a girl at the school who was a wonderful dancer, a great student. Um, she wasn't exceptional. She was, she was good. And she was going to be able to go to, she auditioned for a dance program at Slippery Rock College, and the college um, had a, a special audition where they only invited 16 people to come to the audition, and she was granted um, admission based on that audition, but then her admission had to go through the regular admission process. And her SAT scores were low. Uh, she didn't test well. But her grades were great, and so she wasn't getting in, and she wasn't getting in, and so I made a call and asked, you know, what's going on here? She, she made the dance audition, and yet she's not getting in. And the woman said, well, she has to go through a special thing with the deans to, to see because her scores were so low. And I said, but her scores are low, but her grades are high. And the woman said, well, we can't let her in because it's going to ruin our rankings. And that just really um, got me angry because here you have a kid who is not going to cause any problem. She's going to dance really well for them. She's going to get solid grades and be a contributing member of their university, yet their one score, they were so worried that they wouldn't rank well on the, um, in this magazine that they were going to deny her admission. And um, I kept making more and more phone calls, and they finally ended up letting her in. And she actually did really well at the school. But that's the kind of thing that happens. Um, it's, you know, it doesn't have really much to do with kids' aspirations and their ability to succeed. It really has to do with the commercial competition that they have with other schools. So I have a personal story in this regard. Uh, we have a, a son who's uh, 20 right now and really didn't enjoy school and was very much struggling. And we took him through a lot of the testing uh, and then took him to a private uh, organization for testing. And they just ran some tests on him and, and you know, met with us as parents to kind of talk about his situation. And we went through the, you know, the description of the difficulties he was having. And I said, well, so kids who have these difficulties, what are they normally good at? You know, what's the sort of the balancing factor here? 
And the woman looked at me and she said, I don't understand. And I said, well, you know, you know, I understand that those are difficult areas for him, but you know, what would be good things for him to focus on? And she looked at me, and I kid you not, and said, these are deficiencies. There is no positive. And I remember walking out <laughs> thinking, I just don't buy that. I'm just, I don't, that's an answer I cannot live with. Uh, and my, my sense is that in the book, you're basically saying the same thing. We can't live with that answer. Well, it's not a matter of if we can live with the answer. It's a matter of if the child can live with the answer. And no, no one can live with the answer that they, they are just a bag of deficiencies and have nothing to contribute. Um, if you believe that, you shouldn't be in education and you shouldn't even have children. I really believe that everybody is born into this life with something to offer and it's our duty and our responsibility as adults to help kids figure out what that is and to guide them t toward that. Um, that said, your experience is really interesting to me because we tend to take kids and test them and then make these diagnoses that blame the child and very rarely do we look at the school as having a part in that. See, I see teaching and learning, it's a transaction between two people. Oftentimes teachers will come and, and ask, or, or parents will come and say, can I move my child from one classroom to the next because I don't like this teacher. And we try to push back against that because you don't want everybody just wanting to bail their kid out um, of, a, of a classroom with a, a certain teacher. But the reality is kids can learn well from some teachers and not well from others depending on the teaching style as well as the learning style. So, you know, the way that we set up our schooling is premised on one kind of learner being able to be successful, and that's the kind of person who is book smart and can sit all day and, and likes to listen and um, can, can usually write and, and do well in, in recall testing. Most of, the, most of the things that our school does is on a recall level, and we mix that up in a lot of different ways, but it's passive absorption of knowledge and then it's recalling it back. And if you're not good at that, uh, you tend to be uh, told that you're not good at the subject area. But my own experience shows me that that's just false. Um, I was told and, meant and led to believe my whole life that I was not good at math. And now as an adult, when my mind is ready to understand the universe and understand that there's a mathematical um, realm to the universe and really get what that is, I actually like math and would like to go back and probably try to learn it again, but in a totally different way. So, um, you know, I don't think it's, and, and I, I want to say this, there's a lot today uh, that, uh, that's teacher bashing, and I, I don't, I think teachers are really well-intentioned, and I think that teachers want to do well, but they don't really have that many models. Some of the models that they have are just the way they've been taught, so they, they don't know what uh, what a lot of different um, ways to engage kids are. And so I think that the more that we're able to teach teachers the variety of ways rather than just how they learned, teachers often go into teaching because they loved learning. But learning and teaching are two different strengths and they're two different skill sets. So just because you learn something and you like it doesn't mean you can teach it and especially makes it more difficult for you to teach it to people who struggle when, when um, you got it right. So Jennifer, the Future of Education audience has been really patient with me as I've, uh, over the last couple of months, been trying to make a connection with a principal in the business world. I think you're going to get it and hopefully you'll be able to explain in a way that, that, uh, that, that walks that fine line between bringing business examples into a place that's not appropriate and, and actually 
something that's more universal. So, so often as I read the book, I kept thinking about uh, the Dan Pink material and theory why, and especially total quality management, in which the culture and the organization took responsibility for helping um, create a context within which good work could take place. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about your sense of educational culture and how it's developed? Yeah, sure. I, I, I think that the business models for developing um, organizational culture are great models to work with with schools. And you know, there's a lot of schools that the Coalition of Essential Schools and all Ted Sizer's work is really central centered around um, developing cultures that are mindful of how kids feel within an organization. So that um, when kids go into a classroom, they learn you know, a subject area and there's a, a set of norms and there's a set of values that go on in one classroom. And when they walk out of that classroom, if those norms and values and traditions and rituals don't follow them, then their, learn, their experience doesn't stop the minute they go out of the classroom. They, they're influenced by everything that happens. So the more that we have schools be places that reflect the values that we want them to have, which are, in my opinion, they need to feel as though they belong somewhere, that they're welcome, that they have a voice, that they have some, some form of self-advocacy and agency and the decision making, that the school as an organization is there not just for them and to serve them, but with them, that people are all part of something bigger than themselves. When schools are focused on that, and the way they focus on that are through uh, various rituals, traditions, symbols that they have. Um, recently I was in a public school in Pennsylvania and talking to them about how everything that they do to kid, for kids uh, will let the kids know whether or not they feel like they should belong. And right in the middle of my talk, the principal got on the loudspeaker and said, um, okay, it's 3.30, all students are to leave the building immediately, uh, or, and the police are going to come and sweep through. And my thinking was, he just undid all the good work of people saying that they belonged all day long because now they're told they've got to get out of there and they're not trusted and the, it, school isn't a, a comfortable, safe place. It's a place where the police are going to come because we don't trust you because there's going to be a fight that breaks out. Well, that school is going to have a very difficult time getting kids to want to participate and belong and, and to, um, to buy into the fact that school is a place where they can start to form an idea of what it's like to belong to a community. So you mentioned Ted Sizer, and I did an interview a couple of weeks ago with um, uh, Joe DiMartino and Denise Walk about the personalized high school, and I was unaware of some of that material, but they talked about advisories, and I kept being reminded of that in your material, which is, uh, and, and I'm not the expert here by any means, just having heard it once, but this idea that you work together with the students to help develop a plan that's very transparent and regenerative in their taking a role in determining their own education. Um, and I think you mentioned Dr. Levine and demystification. So do, mm -hmm. so do you want to explain that a little? Yeah, you know, education is something that we don't do to kids. It's something that we participate in with, with, with students. Um, I, I see that people are natural learners. So if you let them, if there were no school, 
and they were put in, in, in some kind of environment, they would, they would learn from the environment. They would learn from their actions. They would learn from everything going on, all the information they were taking in. They would naturally learn. It's an organic process. So what we do with school, in schools is that we create conditions for them to learn in the most optimal way. And one of those conditions would be that there are a team of caring adults who are there to guide them and help them figure out what it is that they, um, who they are. You know, a lot of school for kids, teachers might disagree with this, but a lot of school for kids is about social interaction and it's about being on teams and it's about developing their personality and how they fit in with their peers and how they respond to authority. And so when we consciously set up groups of people to address those needs rather than just the absorption of content, then we're really addressing how to the whole child. And you know, there's a lot of talk about the whole child, but the whole child can't develop unless the whole school is developing with and for the child. So there's a lot of different models for advisories. Uh, some schools have grade level advisories. Some schools have mixed level where a teacher is assigned to many students who they, they talk to them about their progress, they talk to them about how their life is going, if they're having problems, that's the point person. You know, we, we set up schools where we have these guidance counselors who have one or two people in charge of 200 kids and they can't know them very well and they can't really understand then what, what their concerns and needs are. So an advisory system is something that breaks that down and then to even break that down further, the demystification process, and um, I call it an illumination of learning, is a metacognitive process where you sit with children and you get them to understand the ways that they learn, the ways that they relate to other people, and then they come up with strategies with the teacher and with ideas from the teacher and the, and the advisor to help them be successful. And not just successful in subject areas, but successful in their whole experience in school. Um, whether it's getting along with kids or feeling comfortable participating, and these are things that set people up for success later in life. Well, let's let you give a little bit of a plug to the uh, sort of the second half of the book and the material in there, because what people may not know is that you've got some pretty substantive um, material in the book to help people go through some different processes there. Um, yeah, the book has three parts. The first part is about the weaknesses, and, and I don't talk about people's weaknesses because I don't think that's really helpful. Very few people suddenly get great because they've been told that they have a problem or something. Um, and then the second part of the book talks about strengths. What are they? How do we develop them? And um, what, what's good about them? And then the third part actually tells people how to do that. It's a workbook. Um, and some of the activities and things all center around the fact that strengths are what energize you. It's a feeling that you have. So in order to feel uh, energized, you have to be self-reflective. You have to know how you feel. And a lot of kids don't understand or know how they feel. So part of the uh, process is to begin self-reflection um, and asking kids a lot of questions. Do you like this? Do you like that? Why, why, why? So I'll give you an example. I know a young boy who loves to write. And writing would be called the interest area. And um, do you have a slide for this? Mm. There. 
Okay, so to understand strengths, you have to break this down, and this is a little bit complicated, but it's really the, it's really the, the heart of it, because strengths are not interests and they're not talents. A strength is a feeling of being energized by something. A, a general interest is, is a larger category. So some kids are interested in cooking, some tennis, teaching, worship, reading. Those are the general categories. The strength is the specific reason why you like engaging in that interest area. So if you like to write, why is it? Is it that you like to write creatively or is it that you like to edit? Um, we tend to teach writing as though it's one subject and um, not having different strengths. And you could end up in the wrong profession just because you have an interest but you have not capitalized on your strength. For instance, I love to creative write and I love to write about the future but I don't really like writing about things that have already happened. So when I had to write a newsletter for the school, I hated it because everything had already happened and I was just reporting on it. Um, I would prefer to write something that was you know, provocative and idea driven. So if I was going to go into writing as a career and someone was going to steer me into reporting, I could actually get in that career and, and think, I hate this. What is it? I, I feel ripped off. Um, so the strength is the specific reason why you like engaging in the interest area and that reason can actually transfer to other things that you do. So for instance, if you like editing, what you're doing is you're really moving words around on a page. And it's the same thing, I get the same feeling of energized when I edit as I do when I clean my closet, when I rearrange everything in the closet. So that's my strength. It's arrange, it'd be arranging things rather than um, writing in general. And then a talent is what you do well. Now it may or may not be a strength. Everyone knows somebody who's um, talented at something but, but they don't feel energized by it. We all know someone who was forced to take piano lessons but the minute they were able to give it up they did, even if they were quite good at it. The opposite of that is also true. So we all know somebody who has a strength and they're energized by something um, say the athlete who wants to be a professional football player, yet he's not talented enough in it and so perhaps um, we want to encourage him to find out exactly what it is that he's energized by and maybe not make that his career because the talent just won't, won't develop. Now people get this wrong sometimes because they, we want to encourage kids to, to try anything but the reality is we, we can't, everyone can't be the President of the United States but Whatever is driving you toward that, you can apply in another area. So the strength is the, what, the first thing to do is figure out what it is that energizes you because that's the thing you're going to do the most. When you, developing a strength is about time. When you feel like you're in a zone of energy or um, as it's called, the flow, time passes, you, you're unaware of time, it's almost effortless, you like doing the thing so much. So, if you like doing something so much, you're going to spend more time in it and have a better opportunity to develop talent. In school what we do is we try to get kids to focus on and spend a lot of time on remediation, the things they can't do well. And every minute that you spend trying to remediate what you can't do well is a minute that you, um, you do not spend working on what, what you could probably get good at. Do you have a picture of a um, report card there? I don't no. think so. Okay, well, we, we use report cards. They're kind of the modern day scorecard for kids. And when a child brings home the report card, he could have an A in reading and an A in history and a B in uh, science and a, a D in math. And 
what parents tend to do is to focus really strong on that D and go into the school and get plans set up for how can we change that D to you know, work really hard and maybe bring that up to a C. Well, chances are that child is not going to end up pursuing a career that's heavily math informed because he doesn't like it. He's not energized by it. He's not going to do well in it. So why is he going to want to go every day of his life to, to work on that? Rather, it, it would be a better use of time if that child were to sit and focus on what they could do really well and, and get better and better at it because that in the, in the future is going to be where they're going to make a more significant contribution. So I don't think that's any mistake, um, meaning I, you know, I graduated high school in 1979. And I think I could say, I mean, I'm probably my parents actually said these words to me. It doesn't matter what you like. This is what you're going to have to do because when you go to work for somebody, you're going to have to do things you don't like to do. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, you, you you are, but that's interesting. I um, at one point, and this is kind of a funny example, but at one point I was on the Today Show and Tiki Barber. It was his, he was interviewing me, and it was one of his first interviews. He's a football player, if you don't know, and I say that because I I really didn't know who he was at all, and. He, he said to me, you know, I don't really buy this strength stuff because I had to become really good at something, short, short passes or something, in order to, to, do, to do well in the whole game. And if I hadn't focused on that, I would never have been a great football player. Well, here's, here's the problem with that example that he gave. He's already in his area of strength. He's already in the game. He's already playing football. He's already... He's got a reason to want to do well in something. So take the, take the child who um, ends up as a, a filmmaker. And what he really does not like to do is uh, the final edit on something. But he's already a filmmaker. So he's going to work hard on that because he wants his film to be great. Um, what we do in schools is we tell kids they have to be great at everything. In fact, not only do we tell kids that, we honor that. The, 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 the top person in the school, the top award goes to the valedictorian who's good at everything. Well, that's such an unrealistic model to put up there. So the point is that if you find that area that you want to do well in, you're going to have a reason to remediate the places where you're weaker in it. But you're already in the general area. Um, we leave kids off at this point where we say they have to be good at everything and they have no reason. They don't even know how they're going to apply all of this. So we're going to move to Q&A in a couple of minutes. And what I'd like to do before we do the sort of the five minutes before we do so is, is to ask you, what are the action or policy implications of this understanding? Um, are there ways in which this, you've specifically kind of addressed the reform issue because of it? And what do you recommend people do in their local communities in order to take advantage of this understanding? Well, I have two things to say about that. First, direct policy is something that, that could be, I could see that having a huge effect because coming out of the learning disability model, that um, schools did not have to provide services, special education services for kids with learning disabilities until it became a mandate in a law. And then a lot of money was funneled into schools for kids to get special services. I don't necessarily believe that the services that they're getting or the identification of that is ultimately going to survive um, because I believe that so many kids are getting diagnosed with these that we have to look at the system rather than the, the, that there's a problem with the child. 
But but that law, that legislation, the IDEA Act and the um, and the special education law went into effect and, and changed the way that we do business and education. So if they were to go back even through into the No Child Left Behind law and they were to add a piece that said, and every child deserves to have an individualized learning plan or a customized approach or their needs differentiated in the classroom and it's a law, then people would be forced to change. But then they would also funnel money into making that happen. So I think that's quite actionable. Now that brings me to my second point is that I don't think that we really have a good grasp on what school is going to be like. I think one of the reasons why schools are failing right now, as we say it, and there's so much um, concern and there's so much um, energy around school reform suddenly is that schools have reached an end point of their life. I believe their shelf life is expired. Um, everywhere else in society we have huge changes, yet we don't in schools. And so I want to even, you can go back to those slides now and I'll show you. Um, if, where things have gone. So this is, this is where music has gone. Who could have predicted ever that music would end up coming out of a little you know, handheld thing like that from that first phonograph? There's no way you could even predict that. Okay, so the next one. This is where cars have gone. That's a fully uh, electric car. I don't know if I believe that fully electric is good, but it weighs under a thousand pounds and this, the material it's made out of is practically dent proof. So there's been a huge you know, evolution in, in car manufacturing. Okay, the next one. Now our writing implements have gone from the pencil to writing on, on computers and boards and things that we can even carry around with us. Who would have predicted that? And then finally, this is how our classrooms look. Um, the advance in this picture is really in the photography, not in the, the classroom. Um, there's not much difference. So right now we're faced with a system that we can blame teachers and we can blame uh, unions and we can blame all kinds of people and be in a big debate, but the reality is we have not kept up with the changes that have gone on in our society within this system. And so we're at a point now where this system is going to change. And uh, it's going to change in some really exciting ways and it's going to be things that people can barely even think of now. So the day that the iPhone came out, people couldn't predict that. They didn't know what that looked like until it happened. They didn't know what the Internet was. They couldn't even talk about it until it was there for them to use. I believe that our educational system is going to change in much that way. That education 20 years from now will suddenly have tools and ways of of um, working around the world that we can't even envision right now. So what's important for kids to learn? What are we doing? Do we just sit back and wait? Or are people you know, left, left by the side of the road because we're, we were born into the wrong time in the transition? I believe that the one thing that people are going to need to know in the future, no matter what system is it there, is going to be what energizes them, what their strengths are, what they're passionate about, and what contribution they have to make. And again, that's not an interest level. I, I was in high school with a lot of kids who were taught um, computer programming for computers that are outdated now. So the question isn't, we don't want to prepare kids for things that aren't going to be here. What's important is that those kids who were getting into that programming, it was that action that they were doing. It was the organizing of debt. It was the coming up with solving problems and figuring out that that's their strength. That's the thing that can be transferred to anything that comes up in the future. So if communication is your strength, 
it doesn't matter what, what the tool is, you know that whatever tool is put in front of you, that's what you're going to want to engage in. So let me play the devil's advocate, because I'm frequently on, on the other side of this issue. But if we know that schools mm -hmm. have resisted change for so long, and we know that institutions can continue on well past their prime, and if part of what you've described tonight are, is a culture change, an intentional community around education, um, uh, are, uh, do we actually see people adopting that? And, uh, or is it just that this will always, you know, that these kinds of devoted efforts to educational communities are, are going to be on the fringes because the larger policy doesn't understand and the, the value of that intentional community and the culture of education? I envision a, a model of education where kids are participating in project-based learning for real-world projects online with, with each other, creating real-world results. So, um, and working collaboratively across platforms and having to learn in order to create the, the various products that they're putting into the marketplace, that kids are actually putting into the marketplace. So rather than teach kids to make a fake play, you know, make real ones that are actually put on somewhere, or rather than having students write um, pretend letters to fictionalized characters, have them write real letters to real people and do real actions. When, when kids are doing real world work across multiple platforms, then the question becomes, okay, so what do they need to be in school for? And that's the question that we should be asking because these tools and these platforms are coming. The Gates Foundation just put out in the past couple weeks a call for um, starting at the college level, but then to go down to the high school level, um, proposals for people who are going to bring together multiple technology platforms to create new ways to conceive education. And we're not just talking about something like Khan Academy. Um, if, if you know what that is, that's, it's great. It's, it's online videos of, teaching, of um, teaching people different concepts like math and science and things like that. But to me, that's not a transformative education. That's a replication of what we do in school. It's direct instruction, and it's watching something and taking in information. It's just a different platform for it. I think the new platforms are going to be more than just watching something. They're going to be doing something. Kids are going to be doing something. And when they really start doing it and when they're learning from it, we can keep trying to get them into school. But if they're going to be able to do, do things and, and advance in life other than school, then that's going to take over and kids are just going to go there. And I think we'll have to revision school, revision schools then. Okay, so I'm pressing so you for... Go ahead. Okay, no, go ahead. I was going to say I'm pressing you for a reason because we're trying to envision the future here. But what I hear you saying is the platform and the tools are going to become so compelling that people will opt out of traditional schools, thereby putting pressure on the school system to change? Close, but I'm, not quite. What I'm suggesting is that the outcomes of using those tools are going to be so empowering and advancing for kids that they won't need to be in the classroom learning what, they're, what, they're, what they are now. But, but I, I, so it's I, not just the tools themselves. It's not just using the tools and not being entertained by the tools and not learning by the tools. It's what the tools are going to allow them to achieve. 
So again, I'm playing devil's advocate because you'd have to know that I'm okay. always on the other side of this. But I'm, but you know, from what you've described at the, at the school that you were leading, um, that really required a local effort to create a community around an intentional community around learning. And if if you if the tools drive those activities, do you still not have the culture? But interestingly enough, what went on at that school and what taught those kids was not necessarily what was going on in the classroom. Um, I was not always enthralled by what was happening in the classrooms, but what was happening outside of the classrooms took kids who were lost, kids who needed direction, and it gave them such a, a huge shot in the arm of confidence and feeling like they have ability and showing them, help, helping them be successful in a number of arenas interpersonally that they were ready to go on and be successful and focus on school. Um, so I do believe that the intentional community has a lot to offer that's not necessarily classroom content driven. Okay, we're going to leave it there because I really dug into the participant Q&A time. So if you have a question for Jennifer, you can either raise your hand using the hand with the green up arrow that's at the bottom of your participant window and we'll give you the microphone, or you can put it in the chat. Um, and while we're waiting for a question, Jennifer, if we wanted to follow some of the thoughts that you put in the book, who are some other people that I could interview that you would recommend? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that Ken Robinson and I are pretty close in alignment on, um, on our ideas and our philosophies. I think that you've already interviewed Sam Shelton. Um, I work with him. We're working on another book together. Um, and um, I, I can't help you there right now, Steve. Okay. Well, maybe you'll let me know later. But I, who is Sam? I'm not sure that I have interviewed <laughs> Sam. Well, I thought maybe you did. He started a, um, a group called Rethink Learning Now. I'm just mispronouncing his last name. Yes, I did interview him. Yes. Okay, so if you have a question for Jennifer, raise your hand or put it in the chat. Jennifer, how have you liked this platform? Uh, I like it. It's, um, it's, it's difficult in that uh, you ha I, I kind of wish I had one of those when kids can't study in school, we put, them in, we put these little things around them so they can't see beyond. So I'm, I'm watching this platform and I'm, I'm seeing everything that's happening and anytime something happens in the room that I'm in to draw my attention away, it's, it's really very difficult. But other than that, it's great. It's also hard to get used to the chat taking place, which isn't always relevant to the concert conversation. But it's, it's like watching that back channel. Okay, so Carol says. Well, well, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that I was going to say that the chat is actually seeming more interesting than what I'm saying, and I'm reading it as I'm talking, so it's very distracting. So Carla asks, "What are your thoughts on No Child Left Behind?" Oh, I think that that was a bill that began as a moment to try to help kids and if you really look at the whole bill, it had lots of really great things in it like universal preschool, um, which is the most important learning time. It had programs about helping kids get nutrition, uh, proper nutrition to be prepared for school. 
it had a lot of really good stuff in it, yet none of it was funded except for this standardized testing as a measure of how well people are doing. And the reason that it was put in there was so that uh, it was going to monitor how much money um, school districts got. And then it became the tail that is now wagging the dog. And so No Child Left Behind has become a culture in this country of standardized testing that I believe along with most people is, um, is extremely damaging to students, teachers, and schools. And it doesn't report back what we want it to. And it's going to, um, and I don't understand why with so many people in an uproar about it that it, nobody's being listened to. It's, it's really difficult to embrace that. So um, the, one of the questions here was, um, sorry, uh, uh, Michael, George Mason University, what do you think of, about the future of DE? I'm not sure I know what DE is. Um, DI? Oh, distance education, digital equity? Um, School closing for the. Oh. So let's ask another well, one. Distance, and we'll let distance education. And that's what he said. Distance education. Um, I think that distance education, if the platforms can get kids actually doing things, is great. I don't think just being on a computer for the sake of being on a computer and learning in a way that's, again, yet another taking in of information is. is is that revolutionary. I think it has to be integrated with a whole model of um, a whole array of different things that kids are doing and learning. Um, so as, as people are learning from far away and, and, and creating things you know, from across borders, I think, that's, I think that's really, really great. But I also, I believe in the community. And so I think that we have to start to see school as something that is local as well as global. Catherine asks, how do you lead a school with a progressive mission that, as you found in your experience, did not walk the talk? Why is that, and how does a leader circumvent that obstacle? Well, I circumvented it by leaving the school. Um, <laughs> it's very difficult to get people to change. Um, and in schools, it's more difficult than any place else, I think. It, I, I don't know how to do it. Um, it, takes a, it's a, it takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of hand-holding. Myself, I am an entrepreneur, and we talk about wanting entrepreneurial leaders. However, entrepreneurial leaders are people who are change agents, and yet traditional schools are fundamentally opposed to change. So usually those people end up um, becoming targets in schools. Uh, I think the way to begin, and that's what, what's happening in this country right now, is they're going into schools and trying to initiate change, and people are afraid, and you know, lots of conflict is, is cropping up. It, it, then that's why people are starting charter schools because they want to start over. They want to they want to get the people who who believe in what they're doing. But um, it's interesting because I'll plug my friend Sam again. He's writing a book right now about starting a school, and one of the things he's finding out is even when you have everyone who is philosophically aligned in an agreement, uh, you have trouble. It, it, you have conflict and you have people who have a very difficult time getting you know, the, the, the thing to, to work as, as told as, as it's advertising itself. So I don't really, I think it's a, I think it's a very difficult um, 
challenging move to lead a school through transformational change. And it takes a long time. And it takes someone who's very brave. Um, I think we saw with Michelle Ray that one of the problems that she had in DC schools was that she went in and acted too quickly. She didn't build her, um, her, her base of proponents. She, she, was, she instilled fear in people where there was not a need to be fear. And she felt a sense of urgency that was definitely, there is a sense of urgency, but we can't act in ways that make people have that sense of urgency heightened and feel fearful. Jennifer, we've reached the top of the hour, and I'm, uh, I like to stay right on time so that you know, because you committed an hour, that we're done. So I'm clapping for you. I really appreciate your coming on. Um, I love the book. I, like I said, I am going to order the audio version and try and encourage my family to read it with me. Um, and the book is Your Child's Strength, Discover Them, Develop Them, Use Them, now in paperback, or get the hardback at a discount from Amazon. Thanks to Learn Central, Bing, and Redo, Illuminate, now Blackboard Communicator, Collaborate, and uh, do join us for an upcoming session if there's one yet that's of interest to you. Any last words, Jennifer? Uh, I just want to say thank you to everybody who chatted in there. I, I think people wrote really great um, comments that I, can I go back and read those once this is over? Right, so the recording will actually, you can play the full recording back with all the questions. Also, if you'd like right now, you can go up to File, Save, and you can save the chat conversation if you want to look at it right away. Okay, my final word is this. There's a lot of talk going on now about education. And there's a lot of people whose voices are suddenly entering into this conversation. Movie stars and you know, politicians. And it's like our day is here. And now the people who are, who are really taking over the voices in this, um, it, it's really important that we stay focused on the positive and on examples of really great learning and teaching that are going on out there and not engage in um, a destructive, polarized conversation. That's my last word. Good last word. Thank you so much for coming. I've put your website up on the um, web tour so people can see it. Do go to strengthsmovement.com. Uh, final clap for you, Jennifer. Thanks for coming, everybody. Thanks for a great session, and thanks for a great book. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Bye. Okay, so gang, thanks for coming. You know the drill. We'll turn the recording off, and we'll have to leave the room to the recording in process, and it will go up within the next hour or two. appreciate your being here tonight, and uh, appreciate such a, a good session.